morning and welcome. We do welcome you back to Alger Assembly of God. We welcome you back to our study on Elijah. And uh, we have, we've been spending quite a number of weeks, and we are nearing the end. We have this week, and next week we will conclude. This week I invite you to 2 Kings chapter 1, and yet again, once again, if you're following and paying attention, you're, you're working uh, you know, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, uh, maybe inside there's this hand that's raised, and you're saying, Pastor, you missed a chapter. Once again, we are skipping uh, a chapter because there's no Elijah. This is uh, the study, and this is the sermon series on Elijah. 1 Kings chapter 22 does not have Elijah, but we're going to kind of take a little bit of time and just summarize what that is. You can turn there if you would like, but we'll summarize a little bit of what took place because that's going to set up then 2 Kings chapter 1. Because 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 1 reads like this, after Ahab's death, after Ahab's death. And so somewhere there in this previous chapter, we see that the king who had been this wicked and evil and sinful king against Elijah and against the mighty God, that something took place in his life. So what took place in this chapter? So 1 Kings chapter 22, the, the last chapter of that book, it begins like this. It says, three years have passed without war between Syria and Israel. So if you're reading that, the very first verse of that chapter, it's somewhat a foreshadowing that three years have passed, there's been no war. It's foreshadowing something's about ready to take place. There's two main individuals, two main kings in this chapter. There's Jehoshaphat, who is the king of Judah, and he's meeting with King Ahab, who we've connected with. He's the king of Israel, and he's that sinful and wicked king that Elijah has been sent to minister to. Remember, this is the divided kingdom. We've got the northern kingdom being Israel, the southern kingdom being Judah. And so each of them have had some kings, and now we've got both of these kings meeting together. King Jehoshaphat comes to King Ahab, and he basically says, Listen, Ramoth Gilead, there's this, this place that's in Syria. It's ours. It's been given to us, and yet we hesitate to do anything. We hesitate to kind of go take it back and claim it. And these two kings, the king of Israel, the king of Judah, basically pledge to join forces, unite together, and they're going to attack. But what's interesting is the chapter says, King Jehoshaphat says, why don't we inquire of the Lord? Doesn't that sound like a wise thing? We're making some big plans. We're going to attack. Oh, wait a second. Maybe we should see what God has to say. So he says, why don't we inquire of the Lord? So King Ahab, rather than going for this true man of God, he collects 400 prophets. What kind of prophets? Not exactly sure. 400 prophets are gathered together and they say, hey, here's our plans. Should we, Israel and Judah, join forces and attack Syria? Should we go up? And all together as one, all 400 are saying in agreement literally the same thing. Go up, the Lord will deliver it. That's 400 people saying the same thing. You would think that would be enough. 
It was good enough for Ahab, but once again, King Jehoshaphat says, well, listen, isn't there truly a prophet, a man of God that we can ask? And Ahab says, well, there is one. He goes by the name of Micaiah. Ah, but I don't really like him. He never has anything good to say about me. I kind of like what these 400 prophets, they all say yes, you and I say yes, so let's just stick with them, but Jehoshaphat says, well, why don't you bring this Micaiah guy? So they call for him, and, and you know, the, the person who was sent to go get him and bring him back, he's filling him in on the way. Just so you know, here's what's going on. King Ahab, King Jehoshaphat, they're wanting to join forces. They're wondering, should we attack? Should we fight? All 400 of us said yes. So Micaiah, if you know what's good for you, you just agree with what we say, and everything will be peachy. So they bring the prophet. And they ask, should we go to war? And what's interesting is Micaiah says, yes. And he literally repeats word for word everything that the other prophets have stated. Well, King Ahab, he knows his prophet. And he realizes that Micaiah is answering, not honestly, not truthfully, but rather sarcastically. Yeah, yeah, go up. Sure, attack. You'll be successful. And he says, how many times do I need to tell you, I want to know the truth? He's like, you want the truth? <laughs> you can't handle the truth, he says. Okay, that's not in here. But he says, I see Israel scattered. You want to go up and attack? Here's what I see. Everybody's going to be scattered. And King Ahab turns to King Jehoshaphat and says, what did I tell you? Never has anything good to say about me. I kind of liked what these other 400 prophets had to say. They said, yes, you'll be successful. Micaiah says, no, you're going to be scattered. But then Micaiah continues. And he describes what he, in a sense, saw in heaven. That the Lord was looking to say, what should happen and, and what should we do? Who's going to persuade King Ahab to go try to attack Syria and ultimately to fail? And there was this discussion in the heavenlies, and one of the heavenlies said, you know what, I've got an idea, Lord. We'll be lying spirits in the mouths of these prophets, and we'll convince them to go. And so that's exactly what's taken place, King. You want to know the truth? God has decreed your destruction. It's not good news. It's judgment upon you. Micaiah then gets slapped, smacked across the cheek. Ahab then puts him in prison. He says, you're going to stay in prison until I get back. Micaiah has one last thing to say. If you return alive, then I've not heard from the Lord. Because God has decreed destruction. So the prophet of God is placed into prison Ahab and Jehoshaphat, they, they take their forces, they attack. Now, King Ahab, maybe he's a little nervous about what he's heard because destruction has been declared. So here's what he, he chooses to do. As they go out to the battlefield, he decides, maybe I ought to camouflage myself. 
I'll put a costume on. I don't want people to know that I'm the king. So they get together. King Jehoshaphat, he keeps his kind of kingly robes on, but King Ahab, he, he puts some different clothing on so he's not as recognizable, which was a good plan because the king of Syria, whom they were attacking, he gave instructions to all of his captains not to mess with anybody other than the king. So they're looking for him, and he's trying to hide. Now, what's interesting, as you go through this chapter and you see what takes place, Ahab is struck with an arrow between his armor joints, and the word of God says, struck by an arrow at random. Literally the phrase. How many of you know things don't randomly happen when God has decreed judgment. So he thinks, I can try to fool everybody if I'm not wearing the kingly robes because they came across King Jehoshaphat. And he says, whoa, it's just me, Jehoshaphat. They left him alone trying to find Ahab. And someone at random launched an arrow, and it just so happened to land in between the armor joints. Just so happened at random after God had decreed it. So he's bleeding. He's in his chariot. They kind of take him off to the side of the battle. He's, he's propped up against the chariot, but he passes away. He's brought back. He's buried. And they begin to kind of wash out his chariot. And the word of God says, as they were doing that, the dogs were licking up the blood. Not the greatest mental image here. But the word of God also says, according to the word of the Lord. What does that mean? 1 Kings 21, verse 19, you see the prophecy about King Ahab. We talked about that last week. There was judgment, and this is what would take place later. It's later, and here's what God has done. Ahab's son, Ahaziah, then becomes king. He sins greatly, but he's king for about two years. So that, that makes the chapter we're about to explore, it's a span of about five years. They went about three years with, with no peace, uh, with no uh, war. He's defeated. He dies. His son takes over. He's king for about two years. And we come to 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 1. So a lot of lead-up to see what one of these main characters that we've explored week after week after week, King Ahab, he's no longer in this chapter. Now his son, King Ahaziah. So 2 Kings 1 verse 1, it says, After Ahab's death, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah had fallen through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria, injured himself. So he sent messengers saying to them, Go and consult Baalzebub, the god of Ekron to see if I'll recover from this injury. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going off to consult Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore this is what the Lord says, You will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. So Elijah went. So continuing this morning, the, the theme last week 
godly principles, how to live godly in an ungodly culture. And we took a look at that as we saw Elijah and Naboth in the midst of Ahab and Jezebel. The culture is still sinful, wicked, and ungodly, but we've got Elijah still living in the midst of this. We're going to look at a, a few more principles of how to live godly in an ungodly culture. And from the verses we've looked at thus far, number one, what ought we to do? We need to seek God's direction. God's direction. Notice verse 2. Who did he say to consult? Who did he say he wanted direction and wisdom from? Go and consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. Beelzebub is only mentioned in this particular chapter of the Old Testament. Four times in this chapter, the only times it's mentioned in the Old Testament. Baal was the name of the false god Jezebel had brought in, god of the sun and storms, god of fertility. Zebub, Baal Zebub, basically means lord of the flies. A great, powerful image here of this false god. So, he says, go consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. It's a city on the Mediterranean Sea, one of the five major cities of the Philistines. And they believed when they offered sacrifices that Beelzebub could predict the future. So you can see, this is why the, the king wanted to consult Beelzebub, because I need to know some things, and so let's go offer sacrifices, and let's see if this god Beelzebub can let us know. Am I going to get better or not? The twist or the catch is, this is supposed to be the land of Israel, the land of Judah. This is supposed to be a place that has and serves the one true God. And he's instead saying, let's not go to God, let's go to this Baal Zebub. So instead of turning to him, instead of turning to God... He puts his future in the hand of the Lord of the flies. Understand, God is displeased when we seek direction anywhere else but him. Now, it's curious. you got to admit, many times we're curious. What's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen next week? What's going to happen next month, next year? We want to know. Too many people will seek things like astrology. Spells, spirits, sorcery, witchcraft, Ouija board, tarot cards, try to contact the dead and have seances. People want to know the future. There's horoscope columns in the newspaper. Late night infomercials for psychic hotlines. Books on the occult. And a whole host of options online through the internet. Television shows try to make it mainstream. Make the individuals seem so average, so common like you and me. No big deal to try to contact the dead. So let's just cross over. Let's consult Long Island Medium and see what they have to say. God's word is very clear on this topic. Leviticus 19.31. Do not turn to mediums or seek out spiritists for you will be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. You want wisdom? You want direction? Don't turn to them. Come to me. New Testament. Paul writes in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, 
list of many of the sinful activities before he then lists the fruit of the Spirit, but witchcraft is included. And he concludes, I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Go to Revelation 21 verse 8. He says, the cowardly, unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now, we we tend to kind of uh, rank certain things and we say, oh, well, some of these sins, yeah, yeah, get them. Usually those are the ones that we're not involved in. But the list includes... Not just magic arts, unbelieving, murderers. We say, oh, murderers, we understand, sexually immoral. But magic arts, idolaters, liars. In other words, sin is sin. And we ought not to seek wisdom, seek direction in anyone else, in anything else but God. You see, where we turn when we want wisdom, where we turn when we want direction, where we turn when we are desperate reveals what we truly believe. You know, times of difficulty and and stress, they they really kind of bring out what's already in us. And here's the king. He wants to know. He fell. He's got this, this physical injury. In the midst of that, he wants to know what's going to happen. Does he consult God? No. He turns to the false God, Beelzebub. It reveals what he truly believes. It reveals that true commitment of his heart. He really didn't trust in God. Some have coined the phrase practical atheist. It's an interesting one. We say, oh, I'm not an atheist. I believe in God. I know God, I love God, I serve God, everybody knows God, everybody loves God, everybody trusts in God. A practical atheist is one who says, I believe God, I love God, I know God, I'm just going to act as if he doesn't exist. Rather than turning to him for wisdom and direction, I'll trust in myself. I'll go to this person, I'll go to that person, I'll find it from the occult or witchcraft, I'll go to any place else other than the giver of good gifts and wisdom. In a sense, a practical atheist. Oh, that's not me. How are we living? How we react and respond, it reveals what we truly believe. God's pleased when we trust to him, when we turn to him. He's got to be our source of strength, wisdom, direction. James says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God and he'll give it generously to all who ask. And yet so many people are turning everywhere else but God. How do we live godly in an ungodly culture? We've got to seek God's direction. Secondly, we must live different for God. So the messengers returned to the king and he asked them, Why did you come back? Remember, he sent messengers to go to Ekron and try to get with Beelzebub. But God sent Elijah, met the messengers on the way, and they just turned around and came back. What are you doing back so soon? What's interesting, verse 6, they described this man. They didn't know who he was. 
But Elijah's word persuaded them so much, they turned around, though they didn't know who he was, he was talking about God, and came back. There must have been an irresistible quality to Elijah's personality, a forceful spiritual presence that compelled them to obey this stranger, even though they didn't know who he was, says one commentator. I like some of those phrases. An irresistible quality, a forceful spiritual presence that compelled them to obey. They meet this stranger. They don't know that he's the prophet. And based on what he says, man, he's, he's different. He's living different. And they obey. They turn around and come back. So verse 6, a man came to meet us. They replied and he said, go back to the king and tell him this is what the Lord says. Is it because there's no God in Israel that you're sending messengers to consult Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, you will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. So the, the king is he's curious. He asked them, verse 7, what kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you this? And they replied, well, he had a garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. <laughs> the king said that was Elijah the Tishbite. When King Ahaziah heard the description, he knew who it was. No doubt he'd heard from his father, King Ahab, this, this man who had troubled him through his reign. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean, when we say live different for God, that doesn't mean be the oddball for God. But for Elijah, based on how he was dressed, he, he was wearing these skins and, and furs. It, it was, uh, as we talked about before, almost that, that mantle it would have been representative of this man of God. It was something that, that's what he had been wearing. And he said, oh, that's got to be Elijah. Huh. Understand, people watch. Lost people watch you and I. They're looking to see, are we different? Not different in a weird way, different in a God kind of way. Are we different in our speech? Are we different in our actions? Are we different in our thoughts? Are we different in our doing and in our going? People want to know. They might not know everything about God. As a non-believer, as, as someone who's not a Christian, they might not know all of what God's Word has to say. But they've got a pretty good idea of what should be done and what shouldn't be done. And more than that, they've got a pretty good idea of what's real and what's not. Who's genuine and who's fake. I mean, if somebody is living like the world as a Christian and then talks to an unbeliever and says, come with me to church, their thought would be, why in the world would I do that? You're just like me, and I'm not going to church. I don't want what you have. I already got it. Lost people are looking. How are we representing Christ in our lives? They watch us more than we know. And they've got a pretty good idea of whether or not we know God or not. They probably can't look to the Word of God and, and name all the books and, and name all of this and name all of that and understand all the teachings of theology, but they have a pretty good idea. Are you real? Are you genuine? Is God at work in your life or not? 
And these individuals, not even knowing that this man was a man of God, believed, turned around, and came back. Family members, watch. Neighbors, watch. Coworkers, watch. And they're drawing conclusions about the reality of our faith, whether we know it or not. So, will we seek God's direction even in the midst of an ungodly culture? And will we live differently for God? Not different for the sake of being different, but different than the world, living in accordance with what God's word teaches. Finally this morning, living godly in an ungodly culture requires us to acknowledge and understand God's judgment. Now, the remainder part of this chapter, it's kind of an interesting one. It's kind of a challenging one. It's, it's not one that we stand on and, and preach with glee. It, it's, it's different. Verse 9, the king then sent to Elijah a captain with his company of 50 men. The captain went up to Elijah. He's on the top of this mountain, sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, Man of God, the king says, come down. So the king is demanding that Elijah be brought back. A captain and 50 men are going to go after one guy. That's one pretty mighty, powerful man of God. 51 come after him. Verse 10, and this is where we begin to say, well, I'm not quite sure about this, God. Verse 10, Elijah answered the captain, If I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his men. And we think, whoa, pretty bold there, Elijah. What in the world's going on? Well, here's King Ahaziah, verse 11. At this, the king sent to Elijah another captain with his 50 men. The captain said, man of God, this is what the king says, come down at once. He got a little bit more urgent, got a little bit more pressure packed. He, he got a little more forceful with the man of God. Verse 12, same thing. If I am a man of God, Elijah replied, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then the fire of God fell from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. And we read this and we, we're not quite sure. What are we thinking? What do we do about this? Now, they're calling him man of God. Many scholars, commentators would think that that's not necessarily the most genuine belief of that it might be a little bit more of the mocking sense man of God come on down come on down we want you the king wants you so get down here you man of God you almost more of a derogatory term than this reverent and respectful term because if they truly thought he was a man of God would they have come with 50 people to try to get him? If they believed in him as a, as a faithful servant of God, this man of God, then why are you coming with 50 people to try to force him to come? So many think that it's, it's more of the sarcastic, more of the, uh, the harsh tone. And if he truly was believing in the word of God, he's not going to then command Elijah to come based on man's word. So many would look to this and believe those statements were not real genuine, were not real sincere. And Elijah's viewpoint were 
that more than likely this king and these men, they were on an ungodly mission. He's trying to live for God, and they're trying to keep him from that. And we say, well, but why did he fry him to a crisp? I mean, that's just, that's just wrong. Understand, is Elijah the one who ultimately has power over fire from heaven? He can call it, he can claim it, he can ask for it, but ultimately, God is the judge. And God's the one that can send that. So in a sense, he's basically saying, hey, you're calling me man of God. I'm not quite sure that you're genuine or sincere in that. So God, you judge. If there's something that's not right here, then let your fire fall. That's exactly what happened. Here's what one of the commentators said. Either they did not hold him to be a prophet, or they gloried in putting the power of their master above that of God. In any case, the insult was less against Elijah than Elijah's God. Well, we're hung up on, hey, man of God, come down, and Elijah says, fire! The thought is, this is more about being against God that Elijah represents. So this isn't like Elijah had fire in his pocket and shot it to him. He's calling it out, but God's the one who would send fire. Much like on Mount Carmel. He's calling, he's trusting, he's believing in God. God, you send the fire. Elijah couldn't send fire from Mount Carmel. Elijah couldn't send rain from the heavens. And Elijah couldn't send fire here. But he's turning to, pointing to, and trusting in God. It is God and his judgment. You would think that the king learned his lesson, right? Two captains and both 50s. Verse 13, the king sent a third captain with his 50 men. This third captain went up and fell on his knees before Elijah. Man of God, he begged. Please have respect for my life and the lives of these 50 men, your servants. Fire has fallen from heaven and consumed the first two captains and all their men. But now have respect for my life. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So Elijah got up and went down with him to the king. Yet again, it's not one of the main points. We've covered it multiple times over this series. But the word of the Lord through the angel of the Lord said, do this, and he did it. He was in constant connection, constant communication with God, obeying and following his words. This third captain approached much more humbly in a completely different manner. His words about man of God were much more of the sincere type than the mocking type. That and maybe he also saw some scorched areas of earth in the nearby vicinity. We're not sure. But God said, go ahead, and he went. Verse 16, Elijah told the king, this is what the Lord says. Is it because there is no God in Israel for you to consult that you've sent messengers to consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Because you have done this, you will never leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Because Ahaziah had no son, Joram succeeded him as king in the second year of Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. As for the other events, aren't they written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? What's interesting is 
Elijah had faced Ahab and now Ahaziah, some pretty wicked, evil, sinful, powerful men in authority. And what is he declaring? Exactly what God says. What he told the king is exactly what he told the messengers. He wasn't changing his message. He wasn't, you know, watering down the message for the king. Well, you know, go get him next time, king. No. He gave the hard truth to the king just as he gave the hard truth to the messengers who were seeking after him. We've got to understand and acknowledge God's judgment. God had declared judgment on Ahab, and in the chapter that we summarized, judgment came. And God is decreeing judgment here on King Ahaziah, and near immediately, verse 17, according to the word of the Lord, this is exactly what happened. There's judgment. Understand that what God decrees will come to pass. You can trust in God's word. Certainly, we can trust in his promises. We can also trust in the judgment of God. So let us live pure. Let us live holy. Let us live godly in an ungodly culture. Take a look at last week and this week. How do we live godly in an ungodly culture? Last week we saw we stand upon God's word. We know that God sees everything that takes place. We speak out God's truth. And then we understand God's grace. This morning as we've continued, how do we live godly in an ungodly culture? We seek God's direction. Wisdom and direction directly from him. We live differently for God. And then we acknowledge His judgment. <music>